Please pray with me. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather in your name, to study in this place, and have the privilege of hearing your voice in Scripture. So please now, Father, help me to teach it faithfully and well. Help us all to listen well, and please help us to indeed serve and love you as we love one another for Jesus' sake. Amen. A few years ago, I had the privilege of playing soccer on the same team as my one and only and therefore favourite son. He was 17. It was a church competition. Hands up if you've played church soccer before. You know what it's like. You get injured far more than in a normal soccer game. It's that kind of competition. My son is quite a decent player. And uh, he normally tells me what to do on the field, and every now and again he'll call out to me and say, Dad, and I don't quite hear him, he'll say, Richard, run over there. And I'll go, oh, okay, and I'll run, 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 and I'll go over there. On this particular occasion, somehow he managed to dribble the ball past all the defenders on the left-hand side. He centred the ball, and it ricocheted off my foot, and it scored. Unbelievable. <laughs> it was a miracle of the highest order, really. <laughs> In that moment, I also strained my hamstring. <laughs> but in that very same game, the son glorified the father. <laughs> As the father glorified the son. As we come to the text before us, we get the unbelievable privilege, do we not, of seeing the relationship between God the father and God the Son, and the implications for us as he draws us into his very self. In the context, Jesus, of course, is in the middle of his so-called farewell discourse in the upper room, and he's there with his remaining 11 disciples. Judas Iscariot has left the scene to betray him. Their hearts are troubled. It's a somber moment. Jesus is about to leave them. They've heard of a certain betrayal. They're not quite sure what's going on. But back in chapter 14, Jesus comforts them with the promise of another helper, the spirit of truth who will replace him when he goes to the Father. And here in chapter 15, Jesus comforts them with the inside knowledge of how they will be caught up into the life of the Father and the Son. And so, three headings if you're the note-taking kind. We're going to look at the cleansing of the Father and the Son, the love of the Father and the Son, and then the revelation of the Father and the Son. Firstly, the cleansing of the Father and the Son. Verses 1 to 3. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
The relationship between the father and the son is like the relationship between a vine dresser and a vine, we are told. And please note the vine dresser, the, the father, is the one who does all the gardening here. It's the father who takes away the branches that don't bear fruit. It's the father who, who prunes the branches that do bear fruit. And the son, well, he's the vine. And he's not just any vine. He's the true vine. And here we come to the seventh and last of all the famous I am statements in the Gospel of John. He's just said in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, I am the true vine. Now, if you heard Jesus say these words, would it not at some point make you feel that as if he says that with Stunning egocentricity. I am the true vine. I mean, how would you feel if I said, I am the true Australian? Or even better, I am the true Asian. I am the true Bruce Lee. I actually said that with one crowd and one woman just, just belly laughed and almost fell over and died, basically. Uh, <laughs> <she> <laughs> it's laughable, isn't it? Except Jesus says it with stunning seriousness. And what does he mean? Well, back in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, Isaiah 5, verse 7, we read these words, For the vineyard of the Lord... Of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. That is, God describes his Old Testament people of Israel as a vineyard, and he was the gardener who dug it, who cleared its stones, who planted this vineyard, but this vineyard planted bad fruit, yielded bad fruit, the injustice of bloodshed. And so Jesus, I take it, is saying here that he is the true vine who succeeded where the old vineyard failed, where the old Israel failed. Jesus is the true Israel who will sustain the true people of God. But how will he do that? How will he sustain the true people of God? Verse 2 of chapter 15, back in John's Gospel. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now the word for prune is the same root word, as clean. The true people of God are sustained, I take it, through the cleansing work of the Father, through the cleansing word of the Son. Back in verse 24 of chapter 14, verse 24 of chapter 14, Jesus said, Whoever does not love me does not keep my 
words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That is, Jesus cleans his people through the word he reveals from his Father. It is the Father's words as the vine dresser, as revealed through his Son, that will cleanse the fruitful branches, like Peter, and take away the fruitless branches, like Judas Iscariot. So how should the disciples respond? Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That is, the only appropriate response is to abide in Jesus, remain in Jesus through his cleansing word. And if we do remain in Jesus and his words remain in us, the Father is glorified. And our prayers will be answered beyond our wildest dreams, says Jesus. And furthermore, let's look at the love of the Father and the Son, having looked already at the cleansing work of the Father and the Son. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The fundamental reality in heaven and earth is the love of God the Father for his Son. Isn't it true that when we read God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, the object of God's love is the world. But the standard of all other relationships is the love of the Father for his Son, the prior love of the Father for his Son. It is the overflow of God's intra-Trinitarian love that helps us understand that God so loved the world. It's not an understatement to say that the love of the Father for the Son is the reason for our existence. It is the purpose of creation and redemption. How did God so love the world with an understanding that there is a prior love for his son? And so Jesus says here, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. But how does Jesus love his Father? By keeping his father's commandments. And likewise, the disciples remain in Jesus' love by keeping Jesus' commandments. Our relationship to Jesus is to mirror the relationship between Jesus and his father, which is loving obedience. 
And why did Jesus reveal this to his disciples? Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy, my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Full. Someone once described the Puritans as a people, quote, who had the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Whoa. But nothing could be further from the truth, could it? Certainly in terms of church history, the Puritans were amongst the most joyful of people. But Jesus here says he wants our joy to be full. How will it be full? When Jesus' joy note is in us. Now, sometimes it's a bit tricky to work out who the you is in these chapters. I find it exegetically hard to decipher sometimes. He says you, and then he says whoever. It could be the whoever among you. It could be you specifically, you disciples, you 11 at this point in time. But I feel as if here it seems to be widening out to the whoever and I think he is speaking of all believers at this point in time. When Jesus' joy in us is speaking to all disciples who are in him, what does it mean for his joy to be in his people? What does that mean? It could mean that we are the object of Jesus' joy as he sees us obeying him. Now, that's terrific, isn't it? But it also could mean that it's the occasion when the joy he has in obeying his Father overflows to us. But having gone to an Anglican college, it's both. It's somewhere in the middle, I wonder. Have you ever experienced the joy of saying no to temptation, saying yes to Jesus' revealed commands, just the joy of obeying Jesus. Maybe it was resisting porn, not speaking out of anger, giving generously and the joy that comes with that obedience. Maybe it's being patient and forgiving when people hurt you or oppose you and you say sorry. And there is a joy in that through the pain and hurt. Maybe it's the joy of saying no to the temptation to lie to someone that you truly love. Jesus wants our joy to be full by being caught up in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Isn't that amazing? But there's more. There's the revelation of the Father and the Son. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, Jesus revealed earlier that the way to remain in his love is to obey his commandments. And the commandments he reveals is to love one another. Now, in one sense, it's not a new commandment because God already revealed that in the Old Testament. 
that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus goes on to reveal in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this is the exact opposite, of course, of what Judas Iscariot did, who betrayed Jesus. It's what Peter tried to do by following Jesus' note all the way into the temple courts. He wanted to die for his Lord, but he failed at the last hurdle. But of course, this is what our Lord Jesus did, wasn't it? He laid down his life for his friends. In fact, this is how he treated his enemies as his friends. By dying the death that you and I deserve. But have a look at how else he treats his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I wonder whether you might want to chat with the person next to you for 30 seconds, and it's going to be a real 30 seconds. What do you think is the nature of Jesus' friendship here in these verses? Go for it. 30 seconds with the person. What's the nature of the friendship that is on view? I'm timing you. All right, I'll get you back together again. Can I, uh, I'd just love, love to hear one or two thoughts from the floor. What's the nature of Jesus' friendship? Anybody here, you got a two, three word summary, anything like that at all? You are at college, you've got to learn these things, yeah? Obedience and revelation side by side. So the nature of the friendship involves obedience and revelation. Yeah, any other thoughts? Yeah, Adam? Sorry, I missed that. A joining of purpose. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. It doesn't seem quite symmetrical, though, does it? There's a joining of purpose, there's revelation, there's obedience in there. Do you, do you obey your friend? It's not quite a reciprocity, is it? It's not quite, it's asymmetrical. Jesus commands them, they do not command him. You know, it's not like Crocodile Dundee. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, Jesus is a fisherman, I'm a fisherman, therefore we'll be great mates, says Crocodile Dundee, right? So there's a, uh, he hasn't seen Jesus cook fish, has he? Because when the disciples see that, they kind of go, you know, down on the ground kind of thing. It's not 
reciprocal. And interestingly, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus describe himself as a friend to his people. His enemies describe him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus doesn't disagree with that, but Jesus doesn't describe himself as their friend. It's the other way around. In fact, even when Moses is described as a friend, it's, no, it's Moses who is the friend, not the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I'm not going to stop singing what a friend we have in Jesus, right? And nor should you. But the point is this, I take it. That is, we can still pour out our hearts to Jesus as if he was our friend, as it were. But we must never stop remembering that he is our Lord, our master, of one in purpose, but we obey him as his friend. Look at verse 15 again. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Right? Jesus is our Lord and Master, but as our Lord, he reveals all that he has heard from his Father to his friends. Now, if you have a boss at work who asks you to do something, he or she doesn't have to reveal anything to you, do they? Photocopy this. Uh, finish this deal, uh, speak to this client, uh, take some annual leave now, uh, go and get the coffees for people. Uh, you can do, and you can say, yes, master, and you do it. And they don't have to tell you anything, do they? And you'll be an obedient employee, I take it. But if your boss reveals why, that's kind of helpful, isn't it? Could you please speak to this client because I think you're the best equipped to do so? Could you please get the coffees this time because Mary is at home with COVID? There's a certain love in the revelation, isn't there, in the command. So isn't it wonderful to know that our Lord Jesus reveals everything the Father has told him to us out of love. Revelation is indeed love. And we have an all-access pass to God's revealed mind, his revealed will, in the scriptures. The scriptures embody his, his love for us. Do you ever think of that along those lines? That when we study the scriptures here at college on our own, when we read, that is his love for us in Christ. This is not just a book to be analysed. This is a book to be received with palpable love from the Father, through the Son, to us, us. But what about us? What's the application to us? Abide in me. Remain in me, says Jesus. Over and over again. Five times that phrase is repeated. Did you know that there's no command here to bear fruit? The command is to abide in Jesus, to remain in Jesus. The, the fruit bearing, that'll just come if you remain in Jesus. Don't worry about the fruit. Worry about remaining in Jesus. Jesus. 
But what does that mean? What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Perhaps another way of asking the question, or rather thinking about it, is don't move away from Jesus. Imagine if you're on a cruise ship somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, All the entertainment is there, all the food is there, everything you acquire is on the ship. There's a cyclone somewhere 100 kilometres to the west and there's uh, other things and a sinkhole somewhere forming on the left somewhere or something like that. And the captain just cries out, remain on the ship. But then you say, oh no, I want to kayak over there. There's a jet ski, I want to get on that. But the captain said, just remain on the ship. It's dangerous out there. Remain on the ship. Don't jump off the ship. But here's the thing, isn't it? We will be tempted to get on that kayak or get on that jet ski because it just seems a little more attractive. Perhaps we slowly drift away from reading his cleansing words, even at college, because it becomes more and more an object of analysis rather than his loving voice to obey. Perhaps it's slowly drifting away because ministry is just so hard. And it is hard. There's no promise that it's going to be easy at all. It's really hard. And people fail. And, and we get disillusioned when leaders fail. And so we think it's just better to jump ship slowly. Or maybe we'll drift away because of the hatred Jesus warns us about in the rest of chapter 15. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. But dear brothers and sisters, our leader, our master, our Lord is Jesus. And he's the true vine. He loves us despite who we are deep down inside. So much so that he died for us. He rose to be our Lord who sovereignly cares for us in every step of the way, no matter what you are going through now. He reveals his will to us in his scriptures. He's got our backs. He enables us to bear fruit. And he brings us into the relationship between himself and his father in ways that are beyond my wildest understanding. Remain in him. It's the best place to be. And may we together keep looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Will you pray with me? We thank you, dear Father, for our Lord Jesus, for giving us just this tiny glimpse of the relationship you have within your own triune being. And please help us to remain in you for the glory of your Son. 
Amen.